Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, and the NYC Podcast Network and the Family Podcast Network. And we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia, and 1650 a.m. in Hampton Roads, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. That's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Deepak Talreja, a cardiologist with Centera Cardiology Specialist, for a conversation about his work, National Heart Month, and more. With that, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you again for being here. So let's start things off by learning a little bit more about you. We mentioned that you're a cardiologist, and you've helped to develop the Structural Heart Program at Centera Heart Hospital. You also have the distinction of being a member of the clinical team that was the first in its region to perform a transcatheter aortic valve replacement. When not caring for patients, you're involved with clinical research and medical education at Eastern Virginia Medical School. That's the professional biographic stuff. Beyond that, what should people know about you? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I love what I do. I would share that very open-heartedly. I grew up in Virginia Beach. My father was a physician. My mother was a nurse. They retired a number of years ago, and we loved seeing what they did and their passion for their work, and that's reflected in the fact that I went into medicine in my father's footsteps. My sister is an OBGYN doctor, and my wife is a pediatrician, and we all love being able to practice in this community in Hampton Roads. I went to the University of Virginia for my undergraduate and then medical school training and then Vanderbilt University for my internal medicine training and then up to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota for my cardiology and interventional cardiology training. And then I came back home and it was great coming back home. I did think about staying on and being in the academic world of medicine up in Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic as it was a real tremendous opportunity to train there. But it meant a lot to me to come back home. And now, 19 years later, having been in practice that long here, I take care of a lot of my old school teachers and friends from days long ago and many people in my community. It's a real honor to be back here. I mentioned that I love what I do. So my job is pretty varied. I spend days in the clinic. And there's tremendous needs in our community. I know that our schedules get booked out very far in advance for any of us in cardiology and many of the medical specialties around. There simply aren't enough healthcare providers in this era. And that's why one of the things that I know you're getting the word out on and I think is really important is it's up to everyone to take good care of themselves and to exercise and eat right because the more we can make our medical resources stretch, the better as a community we'll do. So I spend time in the office and then as you alluded to, I also teach in the medical school. I'm involved in research projects. We test a lot of the new valves that are coming out and medical devices. But most of what I do is uh, spend time in the hospital taking care of sick patients, either with heart attacks or with problems like rhythm disturbances or valve disorders. You mentioned the uh, TAVR, TAVR procedure. That's one that in the course of my career I've watched develop from a dream to a reality to sort of the mainstream therapy. As we age, our valves can deteriorate, and one common thing we see is the most important of all the heart valves, the aortic valve, that controls the flow from the main pumping chamber to the rest of the body. That valve can age, and as it ages, it gets stiffened with calcium buildup. And one tremendous treatment for that is an open surgical repair, and for decades, that has really been the standard treatment, and it's a tremendous treatment, but it is very invasive, and especially for frailer and older patients. 
the recovery from that procedure can take a while and the risks can sometimes outweigh the benefits. So for years, we've believed there was a way to do that more minimally invasively. And it took really until around 2010 for that procedure to become a reality in the United States. In fact, in 2011, the first of the big trials called the PARTNER trial was done testing that valve in patients in this country. It had already been tested overseas, and we knew the results were very good. But we participated, the team at the Heart Hospital and I, in the trial in the United States. So many of the proctors and physicians from overseas who had some experience in the early first couple of years came down, and we worked together. And we actually put the first valves in back in 2011 that were put in without a surgical incision to the chest at all. They were put in using catheters through basically a fairly large size IV in one of the arteries, usually in the leg, but there are other ways to get there as well. It's really a fascinating procedure because as opposed to cutting through the breastbone and cutting through a part of the wall of the aorta or the heart muscle and replacing the valve with stitches, we could put in a stent that has a valve sewn inside it, and that can be done minimally invasively. Many patients nowadays that have that procedure done have this all done through an IV in the leg, and they can go home the very next day. It's a remarkably short recovery time, and these valves really function at a tremendous level, improving people's functional status and their quality of life and their survival. And so that now has become one of the mainstream therapies for treating patients with heart valve disease of the aortic valve. And it's done by a team involving an interventional cardiologist like me and a cardiac surgeon and a cardiac anesthesiologist and a tremendous number of support personnel from nurses to medical assistants to a whole team. But it really has made it possible to take care of patients that many years ago we would have had no options for and to get patients that with standard therapies would be in recovery for several months, now recovering within a week or two weeks. February is American Heart Month, which is an opportunity to raise awareness about the importance of heart health and healthy habits that help reduce the risk of heart disease, a leading cause of death for men, women, and people of most racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. CDC data tells us that one person dies every 34 seconds in the U.S. from cardiovascular disease. With that background, what messages are important to share with the public about heart health, especially this month? What a great question, and I love that you cite all that data and the statistics you shared with us. I think everyone needs to be really, really aware of that. And in my line of work, this is what I deal with day in, day out. When I'm on call, we're directing helicopters and ambulances from across the state to come to our emergency facilities with patients that have had cardiac arrest or are having actual heart attacks. Bring them to the cath labs, and we can open blocked arteries, put in stents, put in support pumps to help failing hearts. And it's remarkable in this day and age what we can do with really sick patients who, for example, like I said, had a cardiac arrest or something like that to save their lives and get them back to where they can enjoy quality of life. So it's tremendous having that medical technology available. But I love what you said earlier, and I would absolutely reiterate it. What the average person out there needs to know is when I meet families often, it's after a loved one has had CPR and shock and is really, really sick. And it's at that point that they recognize that that family member maybe hadn't been taking as good care of themselves as they should have for the last years leading up to this. And it's tragic to be in that situation and think back and think a bit of prevention earlier on might have made a huge difference. And so one thing I really like using Heart Month February to get out to everyone is one of one of uh, the most loved holidays, Valentine's Day, which really has to do with the heart, is from that month. And as a result of that, focuses our minds on heart health and on taking care of our hearts and doing the right things for our bodies. That's something that we really need to think on 12 months a year. 
But I do think this month is a real good time to make that point and help people realize how important that is. Um, things we can all do, exercise. 30 minutes of exercise at least five days a week makes a remarkable difference in our quality of life and our survival. And many of us feel too busy to take that time to do exercise and to do stress reduction, but it is life-saving. To do that can make the difference, especially over a long period of time, between a life where someone's had a big heart attack and their quality of life is lower, their heart function is reduced, and develop heart failure symptoms with activity versus someone who stays active their whole life and lives to a ripe old age with tremendous quality of life. So one step is exercise and stress reduction. The next step is quitting smoking. Smoking really has tremendous toxicity to the entire body. It increases the risk of heart disease, lung disease, and cancer. And there's really no good reason not to work hard on quitting smoking. That's one of the hardest things I understand from patients who do it to achieve in life, but it's critically important. And then you alluded to nutrition, and I think that's the next piece of it. Most of us fall into unhealthy eating patterns, either eating too much because we're not washing our portion sizes or eating unhealthy foods. And unfortunately, in the modern era, we have calorie-dense foods, and you know there are large corporations working to really advertise and ramp up consumption to unhealthy levels with supersizing foods that we know already, even in small sizes, aren't very healthy for us. So focusing on eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, watching our salt consumption. And we can still eat things we enjoy, but trying to be moderate, have smaller portion sizes, and maybe have one day we go out and get something that we know is not as healthy, and then spending another day eating in a more healthy fashion. Those are things that make an absolute difference in quality of life and survival. And from a cardiologist standpoint, we see the end when people don't do that and what happens. And I wish every family didn't have to get to that position where they saw a loved one that they were doing CPR on or someone that was really sick and they could help make that change ahead of time. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. For someone listening to this who wants to check on their own heart health, what steps should they take? Oh, what a fantastic question. Again, I love the questions you're asking because these are exactly the things we really want the community to know. So there are ways to really pay attention to your heart health. The simplest and most straightforward one is to pick up a healthy exercise regimen. And if you find you can't do what you thought you should be able to, if you develop symptoms like chest pain or shortness of breath when doing regular daily activities, now at first, it could be simply because of deconditioning. And it could be that if you stick with an exercise program, lose some weight and get in shape, you're going to be able to do what you need. But if those two symptoms seem to be progressing or coming on with very limited exercise, then that could be the first sign that something's not right. The second thing is paying attention to your family history, asking loved ones, parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and siblings, what medical problems have they had? Have they had heart disease early in life? Have they had diabetes, high blood pressure or high cholesterol? And recognizing that that puts you in a genetically higher risk to develop those same problems. We see patients who've had multiple family members have heart attacks in their 50s and 60s, even without other risk factors like heavy smoking or anything like that. And that's a real warning sign that those people need to be checked out. The next thing is we have tremendous technology in this era, both through blood tests and through scans, to look and ascertain if someone's at risk for heart disease that we're not aware of. The challenge of heart disease is we know from studies, for example, of our veterans who died young in wars like the Korean War and the Vietnam War from autopsy studies that even in their 20s and 30s, most Americans start developing early heart disease. So you can imagine most Americans in their 40s to 70s have plaque within the arteries of the heart that puts them at risk for heart attack and stroke and other cardiovascular diseases. So the problem with heart disease is if you develop a skin rash 
you would see it every day and you'd recognize what's going on. And if the rash was getting worse, you'd quickly seek medical therapy. But when plaque develops in the arteries, oftentimes we have no knowledge at all of that until it gets to be so severe, it's causing a heart disease or angina or a problem like that where there's a visible symptom. But that's often late in the course. And so now we have blood tests where we can check cholesterol. And anyone, for example, that has a strong family history or knows they haven't been doing what they should in terms of exercise and diet should have their cholesterol level checked periodically. In fact, we now even do this in children that have high-risk genetic backgrounds even as early as age two to four in patients with the highest risk. So checking your cholesterol is one index of is there a problem or not, and it might encourage you to think about either changes in your diet or medicines to lower cholesterol. And then for those people that are at high enough risk that we need a little more information, we have a series of scans from CAT scans to stress tests to MRIs and even invasive tests like heart catheterization. What's really been exciting in the last couple of years has been the development of these minimally invasive scans so there's something called a coronary calcium score. It's a quick look at the arteries. It's like a simple x-ray that just focuses on the heart. And while it can't tell us exactly the level of plaque buildup, it can give us a rough feel. For example, I have some patients that go and have a test done, and they have a calcium score of zero, which means virtually no calcium in the arteries. And that is very reassuring that their risk is overall quite low. It's never zero, but it's very low. On the other hand, we see patients who feel great and haven't suspected any problems at all, and they come back with a calcium score of 1,000 or 2,000, which means there's a lot of calcium buildup in the arteries of the heart. And I've certainly had patients even in the last week who've had a calcium score that was highly abnormal. They thought they were in good shape. Now, perhaps they weren't exercising as much as they could have been, but we went on to take a look at their heart arteries and have referred them on for stents or bypass surgery in a short period and a person who is largely without the kind of symptoms that would trigger them going to the emergency room or something like that. So we do have a tremendous array of tests we can do to look at this, but it starts out with a person exercising and looking at their lifestyle and the symptoms they have. Do you have any other common tips or advice that you can offer our listeners about improving heart health and reducing the risk of heart disease? Absolutely. So summarizing the most important things. I think what it comes down to, and a lot of this is what our moms and dads told us many times already, is one, get out and exercise. Everyone should be exercising, preferably 30 minutes, five days a week at a minimum. More than that's fine. And it's great if you have an active lifestyle. It's great if you're on your feet at work all day long. But honestly, on top of that, doing some form of aerobic exercise, walking, getting on a bike, swimming, anything you would enjoy doing, but finding something you enjoy and doing that. The second thing is stress reduction really finding ways to reduce stress in your lifestyle. Unfortunately, in the modern era, we all have stress, and we're all turned on 24 hours a day with cell phones and immediate access and computers and the Internet and social media. But finding some things that balance you and finding a way to integrate those into your lifestyle is critical. Then after that, it's nutrition, finding ways to eat more healthfully, working with your loved ones so all together you find some healthy meals, some healthy items you want. It doesn't have to be expensive, eating more fruits and vegetables. I'll share with you one example. This is the challenge of modern day life. If you want a snack, in the average workplace, there's a vending machine. Now, there's rarely fruit in the vending machine, so most people aren't going and getting an apple. But, for example, you can get a pack of M&Ms very easily, and I can eat a pack of M&Ms pretty quickly. So if you ask me what's a snack, I might say, perhaps an apple or a pack of M&Ms would be two choices that would come up. Now, anyone knows that the apple is going to be generally healthier than the pack of M&Ms. But what's really astounding if you dig into the nutritional background of that is one pack of M&Ms has as many calories as five regular-sized apples. Our bodies have 
volume sensors and not calorie sensors. So I could easily eat a pack of M&Ms just in the time we've been talking so far. But if you asked me to eat five apples, I would have a hard time doing that over the course of an entire day. And so in the modern era where we have these calorie-dense, less healthy processed foods around us, they're so convenient that we often get trapped into using them when we should be trying occasionally to substitute something more healthy for that. Fresh fruit and vegetables are a great choice. Replacing some of our red meat with fish, with chicken, avoiding fried foods. And we tell patients that if, if anything can last on the shelf for years in a bag or in a box, and it's not really food, it's more preservatives than anything else. And so again, it's not unreasonable to have some of those things in your diet, but trying to balance them off makes a huge difference. I think those are the key things I would think about. Thank you so much again for being with us today. Before we let you go, we have a tradition on the Patients Come First podcast to ask our guests a pair of personal questions to give listeners a sense of who you are beyond the work you do. To keep things interesting, we've got a list of 10 mystery questions. So if you would, could you please choose two numbers between 1 and 10, and I'll ask you the corresponding questions. All right. How about 6 and 8? Number six, in the hypothetical scenario that you had one-time access to a time machine with limits, you can either travel 100 years into the past or 100 years into the future. Which direction do you choose and why? Oh, that's a great question. I would be curious to see both, but I would choose to go 100 years into the future. And the reason is just thinking back to 100 years in the past, we can certainly read some history and see even photos and things from some of that time period. But the future, there's so much just in my lifetime that has changed. I would be really excited to see the pace of change of what's coming next, given some examples in cardiology, but the whole world from technology, entertainment, again, healthcare, there's so much that's happened. And the pace of change is increasing so great that my suspicion is, a hundred years from now, there'll be so much more change than over the last hundred years. And hopefully a lot of great things are coming to us all. I'd love to see them. And number eight, tell me one memory from your life that whenever you think of it, it makes you smile. Ah, what a great question. I think the birth of, I have a son and a daughter, and the birth of both of my children is one of the things that was the most life-changing events I've had. And you see them grow up, they're now teenagers, and one's in college and the other's headed that way. To think of them, their lives, and especially the days they were born and how exciting that was, those are probably my biggest smile moments. Well, that brings us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. And we want to once again thank our guests for joining us today. So thank you. Thank you so much. This is tremendous.